First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. How and why do things go wrong in our justice system? We know that they do. We've heard numerous cases, high-profile cases, where people are convicted of crimes, they go to jail, they spend maybe years in jail, and then it turns out in the end, they didn't actually do it. They were innocent. How does all that happen? Well, we've been talking about this this week uh, with this John McComb show series, Canada's Wrongfully Convicted. And in today's episode, we're going to take a closer look at the stories of two people in particular. That would be Maria Shepard and Rob Baltovich. Both of them suffered miscarriages of justice, but how did they happen? How did they end up in that place? That's what we're going to find out. In the first installment of our series examining wrongful convictions, we introduced you to Robert Baltovich and Maria Shepard. Well, my name is Rob Baltovich. My name is Maria Shepard. Both convicted for crimes they did not commit. In 1992, I was wrongly convicted of the murder of my girlfriend, Elizabeth Bain. I was wrongly convicted in 1992 of manslaughter and death of my three-year-old stepdaughter. Rob spent eight years in prison and another decade on top of that trying to clear his name. Maria spent two years in jail for manslaughter and another 25 years branded as a child killer. In this episode, we'll dig a little deeper into how and why Rob and Maria became victims of Canada's justice system. Let's start Rob's story from the beginning. I guess you could say I lived about as normal a life as anyone could, had lots of friends, played lots of sports, um, enjoyed reading, and of course I just happened to be uh, in love with a very beautiful young woman who left her house one day, told her mother she was going to be back in a couple of hours, and uh, she's never been back since, and uh, it was really at that point that uh, my very normal life became uh, very complicated, and it's been pretty complicated ever since. It was June 19th, 1990. I was probably the first person to realize that she was missing because uh, on that particular day, she had a night class that uh, would have begun at 7 o'clock had she attended. And I was on my way to the campus. I was going for a workout at the gym, and I wasn't really planning on seeing her, but I saw her car parked on the north side of Old Kingston Road in Scarborough, which is a park actually adjacent to the campus and I just thought that was really unusual and so I waited for a bit to see if she showed up because I couldn't quite figure out why it would be there. And I made a mental note to myself that after my workout I was going to go to her class just to make sure that she got there safely because you know to see your girlfriend's abandoned car in a park is not a normal thing and of course I went to her class and she didn't come out and so I went back to the park where I'd previously seen her car and her car was missing. And so I immediately drove to her house and spoke to her mother and I said, something's wrong. I saw Liz's car uh, in the park adjacent to Scarborough campus. She wasn't there. She didn't go to her class. And uh, I think something might be wrong. And that was kind of the point at which I realized, you know, something unusual is going on, but 
I guess in the back of my mind, I still thought there was a chance that she had actually met a friend for dinner that night. But uh, when I got the call the next morning from her mother at 6.30 in the morning asking her if uh, Liz was with me, and I said, no, of course she isn't, that's when I think we all realized, okay, something's wrong. The next few days and weeks would send Robert's life into a tailspin. Instead of dealing with the confusion and terror surrounding his girlfriend's disappearance, Robert was instead focused on by Toronto police, who had ever-growing suspicion he had killed the woman he loved. They didn't have very much other than the fact that they knew I was Liz's boyfriend, so obviously you're going to make the list of possible suspects. Five months after Elizabeth's disappearance, Robert was charged with murder. Right up until the day I was arrested, I kept saying to myself, and I would say to my mother, who was terrified about what was happening, you know what, it's okay because they can't find evidence for something I didn't do. And then, of course, they show up at your home one day at 7.30 and they say you're under arrest for first-degree murder. And I just thought to myself, you know, somebody must have lied. Somebody, in my cases, several people must have said something to the police that simply wasn't true. And those people were eyewitnesses who falsely claimed to have seen Robert with Elizabeth on the day of her disappearance. In my case, you not only have witnesses who claim to have seen me at different times and places when I simply wasn't there, but in many cases, these witnesses were hypnotized as well. And until they were hypnotized, they remembered almost nothing about what they had seen. That's right. The witnesses were hypnotized by the prosecution in an effort to jog their memories. However, all it seemed to do was distort their memories, leading to false testimony. You know, one witness in particular who the police interviewed the day before I was first interrogated claimed that she'd seen Liz on a picnic table. Her best and first memory was that the person Liz was sitting with was a middle-aged white woman. And by the time she showed up in my trial, she was pointing at me and saying, that's the man I saw. And then another individual came forward five months later after being previously discounted by the police and they actually recorded that they believed his evidence was impossible and he claimed that he had seen me driving Liz's car three days after she went missing and I think that if you were to remove those two witnesses from the equation uh, it's pretty clear that they probably wouldn't have even mustered enough evidence to arrest me let alone convict me. Robert knew he was innocent yet in February of 1992 he was forced to stand trial for murdering Elizabeth Bain. Put yourself in that courtroom. The eyes of everyone upon you. As you wait for the jury to hand down a verdict, which could change the course of your future, how would you feel? I just kept saying, you know what, you're innocent. You can't be convicted, you're innocent, you can't be convicted, you didn't do this. And then, of course, when they said, we find the accused guilty as charged, I mean, it was a pretty brutal feeling, and I just tried to stay strong, but I could, you know, I just kind of glanced behind me, and uh, I saw that a lot of my family members and friends were crying, and uh, the one thing I'll remember even more than my own reaction was uh, there was kind of an audible gasp that came from some of the media who had been covered the case. One woman in particular, I remember saying, oh my God, they found him guilty.
At the same time police were gathering evidence to put Robert behind bars, another Canadian was about to be wrongfully accused of a heinous crime she did not commit. In 1991, Maria Shepard had two young children and was pregnant with her third child. You know, I was 21 years old at the time, a young mom, never been in, in, involved or had interaction with the law. Yet she was charged with causing the death of her three-and-a-half-year-old stepdaughter, Cassandra. Cassandra had been ill. A few months prior to her death, she'd even undergone a CAT scan that showed some notable space between her skull and her brain. On April 9th, two days before Cassandra passes, Cassandra has what I've now learned, and I didn't know when I was 21, was a petite mouth seizure. Her eyes went into the back of her head very quickly, and it was very brief, and her shoulders twitched a bit. I didn't think of it as anything at that point and didn't know. But then later in the day, when uh, Cassandra's father came home from work, my husband, Cassandra had thrown up again. And he bathed her and cleaned her up, and then he brought her downstairs. Shortly after he put her on the couch, Cassandra had a grand mal seizure. And again, we'd never seen any of these seizures. Everything was happening so quickly. She was rushed to Peel Memorial Hospital in Brampton. And at that time, my husband and I actually brought the CAT scans that we had done in February to the kids' hospital. It- Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. It was at that point then that everything switched and all of a sudden myself, my husband and Cassandra's biological mother were in a room and being asked if any of us had harmed her. Police were convinced Cassandra's death was foul play. Prior to going in to actually do a polygraph test, there was an officer that actually pulled me aside into another room. That officer is now deceased, but um, he pulled me aside in another room and basically said to me, you know, look, Maria, if, if, if you don't give us what we need or if you don't give the officers what, the, what they're looking for, essentially, then um, the following morning the newspapers would read uh, stepmother kills stepdaughter and then they were going to remove my children. You know, I went into this uh, interrogation with the police, and it turned into a very difficult situation, a very lengthy amount of time and hours in the interrogation room. And uh, this wasn't too long after we had buried Cassandra's, about two weeks afterwards. And, um, you know, they they just keep going at you no matter how much you say to them. You had nothing to do with it. They're just not satisfied. They wanted a quick close to this case, and they got it. They were building their case based on evidence submitted by Dr. Charles Smith, who at the time was a revered pediatric forensic pathologist at Toronto's Hospital for Sick Children. 
He stated that he found a mark on Cassandra's skull that could only have come from Maria's wristwatch. He concluded the cause of death was blunt force trauma. I'm sitting in this room with them, and they're telling me that a doctor has told them that they have proof that I was actually responsible for her death. At that point, it took a whole turn and a whole opposite direction, which took away completely from me saying I, had, I hadn't done anything to harm her. And it didn't matter what I said. It continued to go in the direction of they're looking for a confession. And ultimately, to get them to stop and to also not lose my kids the following day and to end up in the newspapers, they, they got the false confession from me. Maria felt she had no choice but to confess to a crime she did not commit. It was a very, very uh, terrifying moment to actually see that I had been responsible or that I had done something to harm her. But at the same time, I mean, you're going through a mixed emotions. I was exhausted, completely exhausted psychologically. I thought that we were going to be finished with it. They had told me when I went into the station earlier in the day that I'd be going home by dinner time. That didn't happen either. When you've been crying for hours and hours and hours, you're trying to tell your story, they keep saying to you, well, we don't believe you're being honest with us. It doesn't matter what you say anymore. They're just going to keep pushing. And eventually you reach a point where you're just tired and you say in the back of your head, okay, just say what, what it is that they want, and it's going to stop. And indeed, when that happened, the question stopped very quickly. In reality, Cassandra had actually died from natural causes. Charles Smith releases this, this report with this diagram. And when I saw that for the first time, it was clear to me. I mean, it was, it was clear. It was a clear framing. He, he did it specifically to match my watch, to suit the case for the Crown. On October 22, 1992, Maria was sent to prison for manslaughter. She was sentenced to two years less a day definitely scary. It, it actually didn't, it didn't dawn on me how serious the situation was going to be. I thought that by complying and doing everything that was asked of me, I would get home sooner so that I could try and get somebody to help me and get this all fixed. And that didn't happen at all the way that I thought it was going to be. Maria Shepard and Robert Baltovich, two different cases of wrongful conviction with similar nightmare experiences. For me to try and tell somebody that everything that just happened in court isn't true, except for my family, of course, they just thought I was crazy. Rob was hauled off to pre-sentence custody in Toronto, where he spent 24 hours a day locked up for nine months. It was horrific. It was 24-hour lockup. I didn't really get out much other than for uh, two visits a week. It's just uh, the food was horrible. I didn't sleep very well. I lost a lot of weight. Um, you're basically locked in a cell all day. I was placed in a paddy wagon dressed in a maternity dress, and I was shackled at the feet. And I remember blanking myself out to the fact that I was now sitting handcuffed and shackled. And I was in shackles and leg irons, and I remember we walked off the bus and we walked into this huge metal cage and they locked us up with other inmates people who had also been convicted of crimes going into the prison system as a woman that is pregnant 
and you're innocent at the same time. This is the most surreal and nightmarish experience I've ever had. I had a whole other perception of what prison was going to be like. Prison is not a pleasant place. Uh, you're always worrying about your personal safety. I'm told that, that I'm to tell other inmates that I was there for murdering my husband. Because if they find out that you're there for an offense on a child, you're done. And then in my case, you're wondering if you're ever going to make it out because I was serving a life sentence and I knew at some point if I were ever eligible to be released, they'd want to hear me say that I committed the crime. And uh, I just not only wouldn't do that, I wasn't able to do that because I was innocent. But, you know, after, after eight years, I was fortunate enough to make it out and uh, you know, I've never had to go back since. Both Maria Shepard and Robert Baltovich were able to eventually prove their innocence. Later in this series, we'll tell you exactly how. But their freedom came too little, too late. On the next episode of Canada's Wrongfully Convicted, imagine the psychological effects of going to prison for a crime you did not commit. How can a person heal from wounds that run so deep? Canada's Wrongfully Convicted was written and produced by Pippa Reed and Nikki Reitmeyer. For Global News, I'm John McComb.